Hello. In a week when Joe Biden revealed Kamala Harris as his vice presidential candidate and thus making her the first woman of colour to hold the post, this episode is all about the role of race in American politics. I interview historian and author of Dixocrats and Democrats, William D. Barnard, and professor of politics at the University of Sussex and author of the book Populism, Paul Taggart. Today we focus on the story of how the Democratic Party lost its electoral heartland of the American South, a complex tale of race, economics, culture and the power of the federal government. It's a story which offers questions that remain just as relevant to the country today. It illustrates how cultural grievances and economic frustrations can combine and produce fundamental shifts in a nation's politics, whilst also asking whether populism is something that reacts to public opinion or rather shapes it in certain ways. As election day nears, what lessons can Joe Biden learn from his party's past and also from those opposing populism elsewhere around the world? From as far back as the election of 1860, the fortunes of the Democratic Party in the South have been torn over two fundamental questions the role of the federal government in political and primarily economic affairs, as well as the question of race. The failure to bridge these tensions formed the origins of the Civil War, with the succession of southern states when they decided it was no longer in their interest to be ruled by a federal government in the north. This decision was motivated by the combination of economic factors, the South was reliant on large slave plantations, and contrasting cultural views, many disagreed with Lincoln's anti-slavery stance. Almost 100 years later, the same fundamental battle was being fought. Franklin Roosevelt delayed the emergence of such grievances, but beneath the surface, resentment was growing among Southern voters to his New Deal. Conservative Democrats complained of its federal overreach, a theme that continued onwards with their leader Dixon accusing Harry Truman of implementing a federal Gestapo. Yet despite these grievances, Eisenhower carried multiple Southern states in the 1952 and 1956 elections, whilst Democrat James Folsom became governor of Alabama on a populist platform that promoted liberal economics and the use of federal power. Therefore, what really made the difference? What was the crucial factor to the Democratic Party losing the Deep South? Here's William Barnard. Eisenhower had great appeal in the peripheral South, uh, Virginia, Kentucky, that sort of area. Uh, and he carried a number of, of Southern states. So in 52 and 56, Eisenhower carried a portion of the South. But what really made the difference was the rise of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, when that began uh, in the 50s, uh, in Montgomery, for example, at the bus boycott, and then continuing on through Birmingham and Selma, and eventually the triumph of uh, civil rights under Lyndon Johnson in the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act, uh, a good portion of the conservative South that had always been there, united with a portion of the white community that had been in the past, progressive or liberal and economic issues, if not of race, uh, to move from the Democratic Party entirely, gradually over a period of decades, two or three decades, to the Republican Party. So that by the 80s, um, and especially with the, after Nixon and then Reagan, uh, the South became solidly Republican, um, as, as solid as it had been Democratic mm. before. Would you say that it was a moment, uh, like a turning point in 1964, for instance, when Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act, or 48 when Truman passed more civil rights platform? Was it something that suddenly changed overnight, or was it longer in the making? No, it was longer in the making. Certainly uh, the 1948 Democratic Convention, where 
Mayor Hubert Humphrey, the mayor of Minneapolis at the time, later was vice president and the Democratic candidate for president in 68, when he led a, a minority plank, he spoke for a minority plank on civil rights, which committed the Democratic Party to uh, pursuing civil rights. That certainly was a, a changing point, but it didn't become uh, massive in its effect until 64 with the passage of the, after the Civil Rights Act and the national revulsion of what had occurred in Selma and, and Birmingham. Uh, and the Democrats were committed to supporting uh, civil rights, as many Republicans were as well at the time. I mean, Eric, uh, the senator, Senate minority leader from uh, Illinois, a Republican who supported in the end the Civil Rights Act, uh, was vital to its passage, and, and Johnson was masterful in his ability to bring together Republicans and Democrats in support of that change. But it did make, that was the fundamental uh, changing point. Uh, and Johnson actually said himself that he had doomed his party, the Democratic Party, minority status in the South for at least a generation, well, it's lasted a bit more than a generation. Um, do you think that you can separate the two issues of race and economics for why the South began to become more Republican? Because, for instance, you spoke about, or we write about, how more conservative Democrats saw the New Deal, perhaps, as a federal overreach, as something that was uh, didn't align with their views, not particularly on race, but on other issues such as economics. Do you think that those the two things were so powerful together that they couldn't be broken, or was race kind of added in to win the electorate over? I, I think both are powerful forces uh, that, that inevitably would out themselves in some way in the political process. It, it all depended upon the peculiarity of the situation in each individual state. For example, just after World War II, when you had huge numbers of veterans coming home, many of whom for the first time had seen a different part of the world, a different way of living, and had encountered black servicemen as well, uh, there was in Alabama a, a surge of support for the liberal position on economics and race in Jim Folsom. And in almost exactly the same year in Georgia, it went the other way with Talmadge, and that so much was a reflection of the two individuals. Now, in the end, the more progressive Democrats in North Carolina and there were some in Florida and Alabama and elsewhere lose out and lose, lose control of the uh, political apparatus in their states to the conservatives, and, and you have that transition uh, to the Republican Party. And so, whilst the sequencing of events would suggest the Democrats' loss of the American South was primarily down to racial concerns, Barnard notes the longevity of the process behind voters' changing loyalties, and therefore it seems actually that this was an example of the electoral power in combining cultural and economic grievances. It's what George Wallace used to great effect as he positioned himself as a third-party candidate in the 1968 election, winning five southern states. And it's something that fuels many populist revolts today, including Trump's in 2016. Here's Paul Taggart. What What would you say were the main cause of Trump's success as a populist candidate back in 2016? Do you think his movement was built on primarily economic grievances or were there cultural ones as well? A mixture of cultural and economic grievances that, um, that Trump was successful in harnessing. I'm not sure he had a movement as such, but I think that um, he created a, a coalition across a lot of very disenchanted individuals in the US but, uh, that worked to win the electoral college. Do you think that uh, cultural grievances are integral to a populist movement? Because if you look across Europe and America, that, that all of them have a kind of cultural grievance underlying some of the economic arguments. I think that, that populism doesn't have anything integral to it. 
mm-hmm. it. Let me qualify that in a sense that populism is chameleonic. It, it, it reflects the environment that it that is in. That's one of the reasons it can be so successful. And it depends on what environment you're, you're talking about. If you're talking about the original populist in the, in the 19th century in, uh, in the US, it's a very different set of grievances uh, and not necessarily cultural. Uh, and, and there's a tendency to, to overgeneralize. There are ones worried about immigration or, or those sorts of issues. But actually, there are populists who are on the left who are not anti-immigration across the world at the moment. So I'm always cautious of saying there's a universal um, silver bullet reason that drives populism. It tends to uh, adapt itself to the environment that it's in and to draw on, on those, those grievances. Yeah. Uh, that's why it's quite effective usually. So populism in different contexts can look quite different. There could be similarities, which you're, you're pointing to, and we do see those at the moment, but that's not, they're not universal to, to all the you know, instances of populism we see in the contemporary world. How, how do you think um, social media and technology today have changed or adapted this modern populism? Because it's obviously always, we've always had populism throughout history. Do you think that the modern style has been helped by social media? I'm actually slightly sceptical that the modern social media has transformed populism or, or, mm. or been a cause in making it successful. As you say, we've always had populism. It's always, it's always risen up in moments uh, across history. Um, so it, it can't be a cause of it. But be, it would, I'd be stupid to deny that there's some link there in the, in the sense that one of the things that populism really doesn't like is the process of politics. And it doesn't like the, the, the intermediary institutions of politics, political parties and parliaments and those sorts of things. So the social, new social media allowed direct access. In the obvious, most obvious case of that would be Trump's Twitter account. Uh, and that the message there, the, the medium there, the, the social media, is the message that directly I can communicate with you. And that's what, what populism, uh, that really um, gets to the heart of, of, of one of the key parts of populist uh, appeals of having direct link between the, the, the people, in inverted commas, and the leaders. So, yeah, the social media environment um, does in some ways help contemporary populists. Again, I don't think it causes them, um, but it, it may give them more access and make it easier in certain environments. I'm not sure it fundamentally transforms mm. them. You know, we see different populists using different social media in different ways. And we've always seen populists adapting media in, in different ways. There's nothing, again, nothing new about that if you look at history. In analysing the electoral coalition behind President Trump, it's clear that, again, it's the combination of factors that's significant. Paul told me how Trump was successful in harnessing a mixture of cultural and economic grievances. But what underlined all of these factors was a common feeling of disenchantment with politics, something that is hardwired into the US political system. And indeed, whilst the populist movement, the Know Nothings from 1849 to 60, opposed Catholic immigration, the Populist Party formed in 1892 focused on economic issues that could transcend race. This common feeling of disenchantment suggests that populist movements reflect a wider failure of the political system. I asked Taggart at what point do voters decide that their grievances can only be satisfied by someone from outside the perceived elite? Um, to some extent, um, you can say that there's, there's dissatisfaction in politics has grown over time. Um, again, I don't think that's particularly um, just a contemporary phenomenon, but we do see an increasing level of dissatisfaction with politics. Um, are the population 
right to be un, unhappy with, with politicians is, is sort of implied in your question. Well, to some extent, you can say yes, they are, because politicians have increasingly been promising more and, and, and able to deliver less. Um, some evidence of that. Um, so it's a ra- maybe sometimes a rational response. I would suggest to you that, that really um, the populist instinct is, is actually just not to deal with, with the process of politics in general. It doesn't like the, the process of politics. Actually, it's about at a, a, a gut level that appeals to those people who say, well, we just want to get things done, get things sorted, get the system working work out. I don't care kind of how it's done. I just want to have those outputs. So um, the populist appeal is to really is to kind of bypass the traditions of politics, which are about co- conflict, um, coalitions, compromise, which are all kind of dirty words for populists. Whether it was the South deciding the federal system of governance wasn't working for them on the eve of the Civil War, five southern states voting for third-party candidate George Wallace, or the election of Donald Trump in 2016, underlining all these results was a disdain for the political system. Is it true, therefore, to describe the populist movement in America as reactive, where politicians play on the concerns of the electorate, or indeed something that determines and shapes public concerns? In your book, you focus on the state of Alabama, which now voted Republican since 1980 at every election. Uh, And you talked about the battle between conservative Democrats represented by Dixon and the more liberal Democrats, such as James Folsom. Why in the end do you think it was that the Conservative Democrats won out on this battle, really? Well, it was uh, as uh, Nixon pursued the Southern strategy, uh, the Conservatives used the race issue to maintain themselves in power. Many of them had reservations about the genuine principled reservations about the exploitation of, of race. And yet in the end, when they were pressed to the wall and when they were in danger of losing power, many of them succumbed. There were also progressives, liberals on economic issues who at times would use the race issue as well to elevate themselves. Although there were others like Jim Folsom in Alabama or Huey Long in Louisiana who never succumbed to using race or religion to try to keep themselves in power. But others, some progressives, some liberals to be sure, but primarily the conservatives did stoop to use that issue to keep themselves in power. Was it a case of following where the public was in the South and where the electorate was? Or were Democrats, either liberals or conservatives, actually trying to lead public opinion into a certain direction? Well, you had some who who eschewed the use of race, as I've said, like Long and Folsom in Alabama, but you had others like Bilbo in Mississippi uh, and uh, Talmadge in Georgia, uh, and then later George Wallace in Alabama who used that issue to maintain themselves in power. Uh, Wallace is a good example. Wallace in 1948 was a so-called loyalist Democrat, that is, uh, someone in the Democratic Party who was loyal to the National Party and to Harry Truman. Uh, And he came from that wing of the party. And economically, he remained on the liberal side of things, the progressive side of things. But when he lost in 1962, I guess it was, to John Patterson, who had run a very segregationist campaign, Wallace notoriously was quoted as saying that he would never be outsegged again, or even less politely, the wording that he used. Uh, and he exploited the use of the uh, issue of segregation uh, to maintain himself in power. Uh, he had a, a conversion on the road to Damascus later on after he was shot and came to accept the civil rights changes and to, in fact, be on very good terms with uh, black Democrats in the state of Alabama. So in that in that career, you 
in that one career of that one individual, you capture so many facets of mm-hmm. that, that were at work in the Democratic Party in the South that made the change, and then later now is uh, perhaps going through another change, as we'll see. Do you think there is a danger in this election of race uh, rearing its head again in a significant issue that divides the Democratic coalition? Certainly, if Trump has his way, that's mm. that he wants to highlight that. Uh, he thinks it undercuts the ability of Biden, who's always had strong support from working class whites, who comes from a hard scrabble Scranton, Pennsylvania background, and has always had um, close ties with uh, the working class element within the Democratic Party. Um, certainly, Trump wants to undercut that as much as he can by the kind of appeal that, that he is making and the kind of steps that he's taking that divide uh, one group from another, that, that play play upon the cultural fears and anxieties that exist, and divisions that exist within society. I mean, there's a whole group of uh, Americans who feel as if the country is changing much too rapidly, whether it's demographically, economically, uh, or otherwise, and they're uncomfortable with that change, and that's understandable. Uh, the effective leader is one who, who harnesses those uh, forces of change and moves them in positive directions. Uh, the one who's destructive is the one who tries to prey upon uh, those divisions and those cultural anxieties uh, to set one group against another. Do you hope, therefore, that going forward, race won't be the defining feature of American politics because you've got conservative, you've got liberal uh, voters within all ethnic groups and actually the lines will go back to economics? Or will cultural issues become the main figure of elections you know in many ways to me it makes it seems more rational for it to be primarily on economic issues than the rest Mm -hmm. cultural issues and racial divisions the power of them is is great and i I wouldn't uh, predict a golden age of rational approaches to, (laughs) to politics in the states um Rather, I think we'll continue to see, perhaps not with the harmful effects as much as we've seen in the recent past, but they will continue to see cultural issues and racial issues play a a role. Uh, That seems to be the lot of humankind, uh, not Mm -hmm. just peculiar to the US. Do you think that race issues, when used by politicians, are always going to be stronger than rational economic arguments? You know, that's a hard one. I grew up listening to South Pacific. You've got to be taught to hate. And the assumption was that people were taught to dislike people of other races. But I'm not sure that that's still what I think. It seems to me if you look out over human history, over eons of time, human beings exist where the primary form form of social organization was the family or the tribe. And the level of existence was such that... um, if anybody appeared on the horizon who was different, different in the, their color, their speech, their religion, the foods they ate, or in any other way, they were an immediate threat to you and yours because the margin of existence was so was so precarious. Uh, so that we almost had, over eons of time, uh, inbred in us a dislike of difference, uh, an initial negative reaction to things that were different, people who were different. Uh, it may be that tolerance is the learned behavior, The divisions that were produced from the days of Wallace and Folsom remain present in America today. In 2016, Trump won almost all of the southern states, 
albeit recent polling does show his support weakening there. Yet is this conversation, and indeed our whole political framework that now is so focused on race and seeing people as the ethnic group they represent, is that us operating within a populist framework, one where debate is dramatically narrowed? In a moment, we'll hear from Paul Taggart about how best Joe Biden can combat Trump's populism. But first, William Barnard, warning Democrats against believing a growth in the ethnic minority population in the Deep South will inevitably lead to electoral success there. I I don't think it's good, for example, quite frankly. uh, I don't think it's healthy for all of one ethnic group, for example, to identify with one party Mm -hmm. um, and and the other. We probably are a healthier society if there are divisions within and as well as between groups. Uh, First of all, there's a great deal of cultural conservatism within the Hispanic community, um, especially on issues concerning family and religion and the rest. Um, And it's also true that when they made an effort, uh, Republicans have been relatively successful in appealing to a significant portion of the Hispanic community. Texas politics, who knew uh, the role that Hispanics there and knew their, what their numbers were, received about a third of the Hispanic vote when he ran for president. Uh, and there are those within the Republican Party who, after the defeat in uh, 2012, uh, suggested that their party needed to pay more attention to that as well. And what way do you think is the best to, if you're an opponent to a populist government, to try and go against it? Is it through institutions like the Supreme Court, for instance, in this country against the prorogation of Parliament, or is it through a character like Joe Biden, who many see as somebody who's kind of trying to be that uh, politician of compromise? 64 million dollar question is how do you combat populism or or what's the the necessary, if you don't like it, how how do you try and counter it? I mean, what we know from experience, uh, if you look at comparatively the way that populism has been dealt with when it's in power and having responded to it effectively, it does seem that one of the, the most effective set of institutions has been things like the judiciary um, and judicial institutions have been ways of, of controlling populists um, much more effectively than picking the right opponent. And I think um, you talked about Biden. I think very often danger is that for those who are opposed to populism, it becomes all about finding the right opponents to it. Now, that is both very understandable because you want someone to counter it, it frustrates you if you're anti-populist, but actually it's part of populism's success because populism is about closing down pluralism, about closing down lots of different alternatives and making it an us versus them politics. And in a sense, if the opponents are all trying to focus on finding that one single person that can embody them all, in a sense, populism has won. It's in a sense, right, okay, politics is really simple, us and them. We've just got to find our, our candidate. So it's easy for me as a professional politics to say this, because I'm not a politician, but um, I like to put it into practice. But the way to counter populism, it seems to me, is actually not to sing, find a single way to counter it if you are opposed to it, but to find different routes. There should be different critiques of Trump. There should be critiques uh, uh, coming from different ideological positions with different coalitions behind them. And trying to find one single person, I think, is a, is a, is a highly risky and not very often a very effective strategy. It tends to be those long-term institutions, the judiciary, um, and other, other regulatory institutions that have, in other cases, controlled populists more effectively. Mm. We also know that you know, it's that, it's like international intervention 
Yeah. So, but there isn't, so again, there isn't a single answer to how to, to combat populism, but most more institutions are finding the right person. But of course, having said that, if the right person comes along or wins the election, um, we'll say that, that Biden is to win. Uh, uh, then we'll say, oh, that, that, that was the answer. But it might not have been the answer. It might be that he's just the right person at the right time. And other things have been quite effective for constraining Trump. Um, you talked about Folsom. And um, do you think, what lessons do you think that Joe Biden could learn from people like Folsom today in trying to win over the South again? Because, for instance, you know, he was uniting white and black against big business economic interests, something that perhaps the Democrats could campaign on today. He was indeed, and that goes back to the populists of the 1890s, many of whom initially were very tolerant, approached uh, both, who tried to unite both black and white, east and west, rural and urban. Uh, but later of them, later many of them become rather rancid populists and turn against their black allies, uh, like um, the governor of Georgia in, in the early 20th century. Um, I'm not sure that the country wants a rip-roaring populist kind of uh, approach on economics this time. There's certainly a reservoir of, of concern about uh, Wall Street and the fact that so many people uh, prospered over a period of time and others have not over the last 20, 30 years, uh, and that many on Wall Street, that, that many uh, people hold responsible for much of the economic turmoil of the last decade uh, weren't held responsible in terms of uh, of you know, the cost to them economically or in other ways. Um, yes, there's a, there's a reservoir of that that's there, but nonetheless, um, I'm not sure the country really is in the mood for a sort of rip-roaring populist appeal to us versus them. It seems to me that there's a kind of Trump fatigue that's set in, uh, that to perhaps uh, something that, that seems to offer, someone who seems to offer calm and competence rather than the chaos of the last three years, uh, is, is probably more in tune with what the country is looking for. Mm. There are certain groups that uh, need to be appealed to by Biden particularly, um, and they're the same ones that led to Senator Doug Jones's victory in Alabama, what, three years ago now, uh, in the Senate race. Uh, and that the two essential groups that are uh, that Biden has to pull very strongly from are suburban white women, college-educated, many of them, and black women. Those two groups hold the key to many of the southern states, including Senate races in Georgia, uh, as well as the presidential, and in North Carolina, as well as the presidential race. Mm. Do you think that Biden can do that and can offer a vision for America going forward? Or is it kind of like a stopgap, uh, a reversal pre-Trump, and almost he, he won't, because uh, some critics would say that Biden's election won't address the grievances of perhaps Trump's base, for instance, uh, white working class or poorly educated uh, people in America who have those grievances, economic and cultural. Can Biden address those or is it just four years of pause and reversal? Well, I don't, I don't think that he is necessarily the kind of charismatic politician who can, uh, in, in the way that Bill Clinton did, uh, people always made fun of Bill Clinton's statement that I can feel your pain, but there are a great many Americans who were experiencing that kind of change economically then who did feel that, and he did uh, sponsor programs that dealt with some of those anxieties and that helped make the transition from um, the heavy industry in the Middle West, for example, to uh, changes today. Um, 
Biden's not that kind of leader, but after the chaos of the last three or four years, uh, I think the country may be seeking some solace in a period of respite, a period of calm. Um, that, 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 in a sense, I think is what's there, what, what, is, what they're longing for. It's one of the reasons why I think Biden is receiving the kind of support that he is. Now, whether or not, especially in the, in the wake of the, the virus and the, and the extraordinary economic difficulty that we're in and the level of expenditure that we've had to engage in uh, to try to make a transition uh, over this uh, abyss, this economic abyss, uh, to something on the other side, um, whether or not the, any government is going to be able to do a, a great deal, one doesn't know. But but you can never foresee that. For example, after World War II, when Britain was devastated economically, mm. and a whole generation had been wiped out, and, uh, and yet that was the time when the country, having experienced what they had in World War II, having a sense of solidarity, nonetheless committed itself to the welfare state and to the NHS, and the great changes were made, those that still shape how we live today. One can only hope that that would be what would come in the wake of the current crisis. But you never, you never can tell. So much is going to appear, depend upon how the economy develops, how culturally we develop, and, and the quality of leadership that we have uh, at, at the top. Uh, and certainly, Biden holds a better prospect for that than than the alternative. Do you think that that sense of cultural national unity required for such a kind of nineteen forty five Atlee style reconstruction is possible in a country that's America that's quite polarized at the moment, a media polarized, and a democracy pretty polarized as well? Well, it's not. It's not going to be easy. Uh, the country is so incredibly polarized at the moment. I mean, it, it, I grew up in a time when there was much overlap between the two parties. In fact, one of the grievances that some people who supported George Wallace and who supported Trump, for that matter, never, thought there was never enough difference between the two. There's not a dime's worth of difference between the two was a common phrase. And, and if, you follow, if you look at the voting records in Congress, you'll see an enormous overlap uh, with the people... Republicans who were more liberal um, overlapping greatly with Democrats who were more conservative. Part of that was the result of history and geography, um, much of which has changed. We've nationalized politics in a way that we've never had before. And one of the consequences of that has been a greater polarization um, along the lines that we've seen over the last three or four decades. It has been startling, I think, to people who served in Congress in the past to see what uh, has occurred there and the level I think there are other possibilities for reasons for that as well uh, for example it used to be that before the era of air travel that congressmen would stay in Washington they, they would, their families would be there their kids would go to school with their neighbors some of whom were of the opposite party uh, and they had much more time to spend with each other whereas now they come in they fly in on, on Tuesday morning or Monday night and they leave on Thursday night uh, and go back to their districts. And, and the whole time that they're there, they're sort of cocooned with their partisan uh, colleagues. And there's less of, of an opportunity for the kind of uh, personal bonds that develop. Now, Joe Biden, in a sense, represents that older generation. Uh, and you'll see often when he talks about working across the aisle, he's been criticized sometimes by some of his, his uh, those who oppose him. 
um, for talking about walking, working across the aisle and working with people on a specific project who, with whom you disagree with fundamentally and greatly on other issues. Um, so it, it may very well be that, that he can, that, that having lived through what we've seen of the last uh, three or four decades politically, that the country would be ripe for, one would hope might be ripe for, uh, an appeal that somehow or another goes beyond that and speaks to our better nature and speaks to our common interest uh, as a country as a whole. And one would hope that in international affairs, for that matter, uh, that he would have the same effect. And then just uh, finally, do you actually, when you look at populism across Europe, America, even into history, do you actually see it as a problem or something of a course correction? That actually it's a way of addressing perhaps politicians going away from the needs of certain areas of the public? of Donald Trump has a paradox at its heart. It has roots in the past and today we've discussed how often America has turned to populism within its political system and as well as the continuation of race as such a significant issue. Yet as Paul Taggart said, populism is also deeply chameleonic and we should therefore not underestimate the uniqueness of this presidency and of the upcoming election. If, because of his character, the fall of Trump is down to fatigue, then will this simply suppress the grievances that brought him to power? If so, then serious long-term problems could arise. For Biden, his best hope is to avoid what resulted in the Democratic Party's loss of the American South, and then of the White House in 2016, what William Barnard calls the great danger, when there is a combination of economic distress and cultural anxiety. Looking back over American history, there is no reason to believe that the issue of race will decline in importance. From the moment of its creation to the 2020 election, the country has always been shaped by racial and cultural questions. The legacy of the Democrats' loss of the Deep South continues to be remembered. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again next week. In the meantime, please do check out my website, ericgreen.co.uk, 
where I have written a long read piece on stereophonics, ABBA and the future of British society. I talk about how we as a country can transform ourselves with a new economic and social model based on community, positive liberalism and benevolent nationalism. And I'd love to get your feedback on what you think of the piece.